You're listening to ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Cardiovascular disease is the most common cause of death in the developed world. It causes more deaths than the next six leading causes combined. More than 2,600 Americans die of cardiovascular disease every day. 12 million Americans have coronary artery disease, and 4.5 million have suffered a stroke. These statistics are startling and accurate despite a 22% decrease from 1988 to 1998 in death rates from cardiovascular disease. We have to ask ourselves why. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Rick Stauffer, Chief of Clinical Cardiology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Dr. Stauffer is the director of the Interventional Cardiology Lab and also director of the Cardiac Catheterization Laboratory. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Stauffer. Well, thank you, Dr. Johnson. Thank you for inviting me. We're honored to have you. Now, death rates from cardiovascular disease have come down. So why is the incidence of the disease so high? I think what we're seeing is that people are living longer with the disease. As you well know, coronary artery disease is a chronic disease. And and many individuals, it'll come on early in life, and whereas before they might have died in a decade or so after diagnosis, now many people are living 20 and 30 years after their first manifestation of clinical coronary disease. So in essence, we're prolonging life, but we're not affecting the rate of the disease occurring. Why is that? Well, you know, it's one of those things where there's a lot of contributing factors. While we've seen the use of tobacco products go down, we've seen the incidence of obesity going up. And You know, it's been called the obesity epidemic around the United States, and it's certainly a problem. Everywhere you look, there's people who are overweight, and the more weight you're carrying, the more insulin resistance you tend to develop, the more likely you are to become a diabetic, and unfortunately, the more likely you're to have coronary disease. So has the risk factor profile changed in 20 years? I think what we're seeing is we're seeing more people with treated hypertension and treated cholesterol. And so while their numbers are now normalized, it's on medications. But at the same time, while that's on the plus side, we're also seeing more people who are sedentary, obese, maybe not the best dietary habits. And so that's outweighing some of the benefits from the medication. Has the presentation of CAD changed any? I've not seen any data showing that the presentation has changed. We tend to see a lot of people now with troponin-positive which is a manifestation of technology, whereas before they would have been labeled as unstable angina or possibly not diagnosed because their symptoms were not classic. Now with the development of biomarkers such as troponin, we are picking up more people in the acute phase of an infarct that maybe before we've not have seen. Would you say we're still undiagnosing certain risk groups, such as women? I mean, that was very significant in my training, and it surfaces again. Sometimes women present differently too, no? That's true, and unfortunately, sudden cardiac death is still a common problem, and those, some of those people were never diagnosed, and, that, and that's a tragedy. In terms of women, what I think we've learned is that the classic symptoms of the chest heaviness while climbing a hill after eating a big meal, it does happen, and, and you're, when you see a patient like that, the diagnosis is easy, but that's a minority. There's a lot of patients, a lot of individuals, especially women who may come in with job pain or elbow pain or uh, some atypical manifestation, and they have just as much coronary disease as the first patient I mentioned, except their symptoms are different. And I also say that I think we're realizing more and more that there's individuals with severe ischemia who don't have symptoms. And while at one time we thought, well, they don't have symptoms, that 
that puts them in a good category. What I think now is that they lack the early warning system, and therefore they're probably ischemic on a daily basis and don't know it, and eventually they're going to get into trouble. Now, I know you work a lot with house staff and fellows, and and certainly when I was working in the ER, that was a big part of my job, too, was educating house staff that CAD affects everybody, maybe not equally, and that the presentations have to be taken with a a certain grain of salt. You don't always get the classic substernal retro external pain radiating to the left arm, and and you've just hit on that, and trying to teach that to multiple generations, really, of residents and fellows is a challenge, no? Yes, and coronary disease is the most common killer, as you mentioned at the introduction, and it's not just men. It's women who are dying at a high rate of coronary disease, and if we don't educate the future generation of doctors to realize that the symptoms may be atypical in in women, we are not going to change the outcomes. And so I think that's one of the advantages of something like troponin, where it can help lead us to the right diagnosis. And, And hopefully over the next few years, we'll also see more advanced diagnostic tests coming out because symptoms in many cases are not as helpful as we would have liked to believe many years ago. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Rick Stauffer, and we're discussing coronary artery disease. Dr. Stauffer, what are we missing in prevention? We lower cholesterol, we know about diabetes, but, but what are we missing? Well, I think uh, a couple of things. One, we have to start early in educating people in the in the right habits. And I think many of the school systems are, are realizing that now, that obesity in particular tends to begin early in life and, and a sedentary lifestyle. Those habits are, are made early in life. And so we're trying to educate individuals to develop habits when they're young that they'll carry them into adulthood and they'll continue with I think we've made some headway in stopping smoking. I think there's some way to go, but that part is encouraging that the trends are coming coming down. And I think we've also made good headway in, in making people aware of their cholesterol numbers. But I will say, despite all that, we still see a fair number of people with heart attacks who are not overweight, not diabetic, not smoking with normal cholesterol. So there's other things out there that we have yet to discover. And so I'm Hopeful that research over the next five to ten years will bring out other factors that we need to tune in to that we don't realize now, because I think there's a lot of people out there who are doing everything right, yet still may end up with heart disease because of a genetic or environmental factor that we have not identified yet. You know, when I was in training, the state of the art for MIs was thrombolytics, which was evolving and probably exploding. Now there is a role for thrombolytics, but survival has been shown to be better at a facility that also has a cath lab. Can you elaborate on this for us? The benefit of a cath lab, which for those who are not familiar with it, is uh, we just do angiography and then able to open the artery with a balloon catheter, is you can open almost every artery. As it turns out with thrombolysis, they're wonderful drugs, but even under the best conditions, they're only opening 60 to 70% of all coronary thrombi. And that may partly be due to patient factors and is also partly due to the longer you take to get a patient into the hospital or to get the drug into them, the more resistant the clot has become. And so for someone coming into a catheterization laboratory with an acute MI, the chance of them leaving with an open artery is probably 98 99%. So I think that's the advantage of the catheterization laboratory. Now, the advantage of the thrombolytic is you can give that anywhere. You don't need the technology and the staff and the experienced interventionalists. And so since 
at least half and maybe more of the hospitals in this country don't have a cardiac catheterization laboratory, thrombolysis still plays a role, and what we're trying to sort out now is who does best with thrombolysis and who does best with immediate transfer, even though realizing that open artery with the angioplasty balloon is going to be delayed because of the transfer time. Now, besides the angioplasty itself, another obvious interventional tool is the stent. What is the role of the coronary stent today, and what type of lesions are amenable to stenting? I think the vast majority of patients who have artery open in a catheterization laboratory get a stent, balloon angioplasty, or as it's labeled now, POBA or plain old balloon angioplasty is used, but I'd say probably five, only 5 to 10% of the cases. The big debate now is who should get a drug looting stent and who should get a bare metal stent. And at least in our practice here, we tend to use bare metal stents if the artery is big, if there's any question of thrombus there, such as an acute MI, or if there's any question of a patient being able to take Plavix long-term. And, and there's many reasons patients won't take Plavix one of which is financial, another which is they need non-cardiac surgery. And the third case, as well, know, there's just some patients who do not take their medicines on a regular basis. So if there's any question about Plavix compliance, we use bare metal stents. Patients who tend to bear with drug looting stents, I think, are those with a high risk of restenosis, so say a smaller artery or a longer lesion, or if they have diabetes. Can you tell us a little about your state-of-the-art facility at UNC and, and what your role was in developing it? Well, we have an interventional lab here that has a flat panel detector, which just means that the whole system is digital. The way systems evolved is they started out with an image intensifier, and then the image intensifier transferred to digital, and now state-of-the-art is an all-digital chain. So we get very good images. We're able to take good care of the patients with the equipment. And, and one thing we really focused on over the last few years is door-to-balloon time during acute MI. And, what this is is when a patient presents with ST elevation MI, the studies show that the faster you can get the artery open, the more likely that patient is to survive. And so we've taken a systems-wide approach starting with EMS and enhancing both communications and removing any logistic roadblocks so that the patient can get right into the laboratory and have the artery opened. And in some cases now, our lab is actually activated by the EMS when they're in the patient's home if they see ST elevation on the monitor, they will call us directly and they will bring the patient to the catheterization laboratory directly without ever stopping in the emergency room, which, as you know, is, is a radical change from the way it used to be when every patient was stabilized in the emergency room before they went on for definitive therapy. Now, can your EMS system give thrombolytics or not? We do not give thrombolytics in Orange County, North Carolina. Every patient is within 20 minutes or so of a catheterization laboratory. And so our practice here is to get the patient into the catheterization laboratory as fast as possible, and, and we don't use thrombolysis. Tell me some more about what you're most proud of in that facility, because you've been there a number of years, correct, and you took it through various stages? Well, what we've worked on is, I'd say, most proud of patient satisfaction ratings, which we focus on, have done well. Our outcomes, which we track through the ACC database, are good, and, and the staff we have is tremendous. And, you know, obviously... Uh, Anyone going through a catheterization laboratory, it's a time of anxiety, a time of stress for the family. We, we try to minimize that as much as possible, realizing that while we do this every day for these patients, it's an unusual occurrence and one that's associated with quite a bit of uh, anxiety. Can you share with us some of your institution statistics, the numbers of patients that pass through or your, your survival rates? I don't have the data in front of me. I would say 
our survival rates, we track them for JCO, and they're better than the national average. But obviously, our numbers aren't big enough to say, make any definitive statement. We have good outcomes, and we work very hard not only to have the patients do well while they're here, also for the satisfaction for them to have a good experience when they come through. Thank you, Dr. Stauffer, for being with us today. Your, your stories are certainly enlightening and uplifting for the rest of us out there, and you've been treating this disease aggressively for many years, and we in the community appreciate your work. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed speaking with you, Dr. Johnson. I want to thank Dr. Rick Stauffer, who's been our guest today. We've been discussing coronary artery disease, state-of-the-art. I am Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions on this or any segment, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you, as always, for listening.